Uh, but yeah, they 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 they're the breadbasket of the Confederacy moving forward. And I want to say by '64, 80 percent of the beef uh, that's going to to Lee and going to Bragg are, are almost all from Florida. Uh, not to mention the salt, the fruit. Um, they're they're still very much in wartime capability. Uh, and I think Florida's geographic location gave them that opportunity. They're they're on a peninsula. The blockade's really not working for the state of Florida, and the only part of Florida that really truly stays in federal hands is the eastern coast because it's yep. separated by the St. Johns River. That's the Union Army's buffer um, to secure that side. Um, now, things maybe could be slightly different if the St. Johns River isn't creating that boundary, um, but most of the battles, most of the skirmishes and everything prove how vital the St. John's River was to, to the Florida war effort and to the Confederacy's war effort overall. Hello and welcome to the Civil War Regiments podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Gavin Thomas and Walter Cook of the Liberty Guards Mess, an authentic living history group in Florida. We discuss the history of Florida during the Civil War, its most prominent regiments and brigades, as well as key battles and events. I learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you all do too, and gained a better understanding and appreciation of Florida and the role of the state and its soldiers during the war. I'd like to welcome my guests tonight is Gavin Thomas and Walter Cook of the Liberty Guards Mess in Florida. And we're going to be talking about uh, Florida in the Civil War, uh, a lot of different aspects that we can. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Well, I, I really appreciate it, guys. And uh, not to cause any confusion, but last week I had the Liberty Rifles on, and tonight is the Liberty Guards. So those of you listening, make sure you have that distinction. But you know what? You guys are friends. You do a lot together, the same type of events. Uh, you, all of you went to Gettysburg, too. We just went to Gettysburg together Um and that's what we actually talked about a little bit last week, how uh, a lot of these campaigner reenactments have guys from all over the country, uh, different messes. And so you guys represent a reenacting mess in Florida. And we'll dive into that. And uh, I'd like to hear more about uh, your stories behind all that. Uh, but to kick it off, guys, um, I kind of begin, you know, uh, I'd like to hear the guests. Where and how did you guys begin? How did you get involved in Civil War history? How did you initially get interested? And uh, Gavin, we can start with you. How did it all begin for you, man? So um, for, for me personally, for, for a while, I thought it was cliche, but especially after hearing tons of other dudes talk about how they got into the hobby or what, what their foot in the door was, um, mine started to seem a little bit more odd. Um, you know, as a young kid, a lot of us get drug around to battlefields or we get drug around to theme parks or our parents try to do this and that with us. Well, my mother just happened to be really big into genealogy and oh, her nice. branch out from just family genealogy turned into, okay, now I want to know everybody in every graveyard. So my entire youth, I was getting drug around to every cemetery in Northeast Florida so that my mom could catalog pictures of graves and pictures of headstones and most especially Confederate soldiers. Um, so my entire youth was was going to this cemetery, that cemetery, and cataloging them with my mom, and that kind of you know sparked a little bit of an interest in digging into these guys' individual lives, and that kind of spun into you know what did their units do and where did they go and did they live, uh, etc. Um, 
so it's spinning off of that. One of my stepfathers was a reenactor for a short time back in the nineties. And, uh, I, I'd always had kind of a peaked interest in it. And really for me, it was in 2016, um, old lusty was coming up. I'd been mm. a few times as a spectator. Um, oh, you know, for shits and giggles, I decided that I'd go borrow my uh, stepdad's old stuff and I'd go kick it for a weekend to see if I enjoyed it. And if I didn't, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, instantly fell in love with it um i think it was maybe two or three events later i ended up bumping into to walter and eric at a little local living history um and after i met those guys that kind of secured my footing in what side of the hobby i truly wanted to be in and here we are now wow well that that's cool that's really great and uh uh, it's great to have the family uh, connection to kind of get in that way. And, and uh, I didn't realize you've only been reenacting since 2016. Yep. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a youngin compared to most of these guys. Yeah, no, uh, but like uh, as, as deeply involved as you are now, um, I'd think you were in longer. Than that. <laughs> it's funny. It's amazing. Uh, and all the reenactors listening know it's just amazing. Once you get into the hobby, that's all she wrote. It just like, everything just starts happening. And so, uh, that's fun. <laughs> but, uh, but Walter, yeah. So you were part of Gavin's story, but, uh, where did it begin for you, Walter? Yeah. So mine's kind of a crazy intro to reenacting. So when I was a kid, I was into two things, history and trains, and I'm still into both of those. Uh, <laughs> but so my family, when I was like three or four, bought me the Disney movie, the great locomotive chase, which oh, talks yeah. about the Andrews raid of 1862. Oh, yeah. And it kind of solidified my love of both things. And when I was growing up, my family, we didn't go to Disney, even though we were within an hour of the parks. We would go sometimes. But my my mother and my father took me to Battlefield because they wanted me to get enriched in America's history. And I distinctly remember the first Battlefield I remember talking to my dad and mom about the Civil War was Lookout Mountain. Oh, and wow. from there, you know, we went to Kennesaw Mountain in that same trip. We went to Chickamauga. So I think that kind of solidified what became my love of the Western theater was that was my intro to Civil War mm. battlefields. They took me to see the general when I was young. So over time, fast forward to about 2002, 2003, my best friend Derek gets into Civil War reenacting with the Four Florida. He goes, hey, you should come check this out. So I talked to my mom and dad. So I joined the Four Florida in 2003 and was with them till 2010. Whenever we kind of get to the next question about when we formed the Liberty Guards and the rest is kind of a different part of that story. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, because that ties in for both you guys. And uh, so you've been you've been involved for quite some time, though, since uh, early 2000s. Well, uh, what was the what was your first big event, Walter, that you went to? Uh, my first big anniversary event was probably 145th Manassas. No, no. Yes, 145th Manassas. Um, okay. I, I remember we went up to that. I also did a 145th Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. So those were like the two big nationals. Of course, Lusty has always been big, but Manassas was like my first out of state. I went to a big reenactment type thing. And it's like, this is the coolest thing ever. Look at all these troops, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fun. Well, for me, like, I, I spectated for many, many years before I actually got involved in it, which is kind of funny. Like, I always say I've been going to reenactment since I was like nine, but I didn't get actually involved in it till uh, 10 years, 15 years later. So I kind of, I was a late joint, but like I had all these opportunities because I went to them all the time, but 
you get right. in when you get in when you make the connection. So, it's funny because the first Civil War reenactment I ever participated in it was the Battle of Dade City, which is great because I now volunteer at the same museum I got into reenacting at. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. it's funny where the bench where the guy named Keith Cole who introduced me to reenacting was is now our Civil War exhibit that helped put together. So I'm like, it's kind of a cool circle. Wow. So what's the name of that museum? Uh, the Pioneer Florida Museum in Dade City. We actually have a pretty decent Civil War collection for a small museum. Wow. No, uh, uh, there's a lot I haven't seen in Florida, and uh, I need to make note of all that. And uh, those of you listening, I always put all these in the show notes, and so I'll be sure to make note of that. But that's great. But yeah, um, both of you are members of the Liberty Guards mess. So where and how did that begin? Um, who founded it? Where did it begin? You know, uh, what are your goals and expectations? Uh, so feel free to dive in. Yeah, so I guess I'll start this one because I was there for the beginning. So it kind of goes back to 2008. Myself and my buddy Derek, when we were still with the 4th Florida, became really into, like, authenticity. I wanted to get better. Mm-hmm. And our unit was kind of thinking about it, but not really into that. So about 2010, I'm at the Battle of Mount Dora, which is hosted at a flea market, by the way. It's the most Florida reenactor thing ever. <laughs> and... um we were, I was there, and this guy goes walking through the camp wearing a really good union kit, and it ended up being Eric Brugworth. So me and him kind of talked. I was kind of that, you know, hesitancy of, I don't want to leave my mainstream unit. Well, there was some stuff that happened. So then myself and Derek left the Four Florida and kind of started talking about forming a little campaigner group. And that's when I called Eric. I saw his numbers and said, hey, we're talking about doing this. So in 2010 in September, we went to the Lake Sumter Community College Library and we sat there and hashed out what becomes the Liberty Guards. And we kind of found it with a few goals. Now, at the time we were getting into this campaigner thing, Florida had two really good authentic units. Well, technically three. There was the 48th New York. Yes. At Ken Giddens in charge at that point, if I remember correctly. There was Jeff Grizelic, 17th Connecticut. Mm. And you had a gaggle of guys under James Permain, who knew he did Company K of the Four, Florida. And then there was there was really good authentic individuals down here, Ross Lamoureux, Joe Blunt, Hal Merritt, whole host of guys that were really into the authenticity stuff. And I would interact with them at events. Um, another interesting thing at the same point, there was this uh, family, the Ehoss family, who I ended up befriending, who were already into authentic reenacting, so they kind of suckered me in with them <laughs> as well. So what happens is we formed the Liberty Guards, and our first big event we went to was uh, Struggles of Secession with Scar. That was our first authentic event. And then from there, we kind of had some goals, which I got sidetracked from. We had some goals when we established ourselves. One was to accurately portray Florida in the Civil War. There wasn't Mm -hmm. really enough guys doing authentic Confederate down here, so that was like our big focus was good Johnny Reb. Mm -hmm. The next was to eventually portray a full-scale Florida regiment which we did at Missionary Ridge, finally. We portrayed the full scale for Florida. The original unit had 135 men. We had 138 men there. So that was really cool. And the third goal was to get authentic events in Florida, which Gavin got us to that goal. So good job there, Gavin. Um, Those were our three goals. We kind of built up, built up, and I ran the unit as like the pirate ship leader for several years. And eventually was like, I need a break. So basically, you know, we kept building a building a building. We had our ups and downs and kind of like the Liberty Rifles talk about, we're on now what I call Liberty Guards 2.0. Mm-hmm. 
with <laughs> now we have a group of guys who are really into the research and focusing on the soldier life with guys like, you know, Gavin, of course, Caleb Granke, who's like our research guru, you know, Eric, Sky, the whole group. Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to Gavin to kind of talk about where we are now and where we're going. Yeah, so like like I said at the beginning, um, I, I kind of ran into to Walter and Eric um, at a small local living history at the tail end of 2017. Um, and, and of course, I showed up to this living history decked out in what, what at the time what I considered a, a pretty good looking A, a and V kit. Um, and Walter and Eric instantly picked it out. Come over, we had we had conversations, etc. Um, they kind of explained to me what their goals were and what they were looking for. And at the time, that's what I was really hunting because I was doing a lot of individual research. You know, I was putting together packets from a mainstream unit that they typically ended up tossing in the trash. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and then after that, I kind of just followed suit. And I think, uh, and Walter might correct me a little bit. I think it was maybe 2019. Um, maybe the beginning of 2020 where Walter decided to kind of take a step back. Um, and for anybody listening, r- running an organization is definitely not um, sunshines and rainbows all the time. It's definitely super, super stressful. So there's multiple times throughout it where you're questioning just how much time you're actually willing to give. Um, oh, yeah. I think I think in about 2019, Walter had kind of met his limit of saying, hey, I think I need somebody else to, to sort of take the reins. Um, and they did kind of catch me off guard. They got together one night and called me up and said, Hey, we think that maybe you should be, um, the next leader of the mess, um, kind of dropped that on me. Um, but that goes without saying that we have a solid group of dudes and definitely could not do it without their help. And Walter's still 110% involved, uh, in everything we do and and everything I, I go along with. Um, but, uh, that goes without saying that during that same course of time, we were doing an awful lot of events uh, with the IR with Pat Landrum. Uh, and then we also started mm-hmm. to dabble in our first couple of events uh, with Craig and Mike and the Liberty Rifles. Um, and that's when it kind of sparked the discussion of, hey, you know, they're really successful. Their game plans is, is grade A and they're having success with it. Why can't we do the same thing? Um, so really hats off to, to both those organizations for kind of leading the way for us because we followed suit. And there's a lot of late night phone calls. Um, between me and Pat, me and Mike, they try to figure out, you know, what are the do's and don'ts and how do they get to the point where they're at? Um, and we kind of kicked it off uh, with our Fight for Dixie's Land event. Um, it was relatively small, um, but it sparked a whole lot of interest. And we've been kind of steamrolling from there. Um, we had an event this past March. I uh, hope we will leave here soon for Train the 26th Virginia, which was mm-hmm. kind of out of the blue. It was, it was something new. Um, obviously not portraying a Florida unit, but it was portraying a Confederate unit here in Florida. Um, and we definitely had our fair share of obstacles, uh, rain, storms. Uh, some of those LR guys joke every time I see them about how they got to experience every season in Florida in one weekend. Um, uh, but, but we powered through it. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, limelight that was shined on the fact that we can have successful events down here, uh, even with us being geographically farther away than just about everybody. Um, and we're fitting to to try to tee it off again, um, this coming January at at Fort Clinch. Um, so we've been steadily pushing the goals higher and higher. I think one big difference that we have, um, and I don't want to call it a difference in a bad way. It's almost kind of unique to our situation is whereas, you know, they're both in the breadbasket of the civil war in the East and in the West, 
down here due to our location we can still have combat scenarios um without having to try to recreate full-scale battles um everything down here was so small yeah uh, so intricate that the door still open for us to have those style of events and for them still to have purpose and meaning uh without them turning into you know hokey shoot 'em ups so that that's really what we're pushing for right now um we definitely don't want to stick to that we're, we're definitely still living history oriented and we're still oriented to raising money for preservation, but we do have a, a little bit of a candle that we can ride on, and that's what we're trying to do right now. Yeah, and before we continue, Stephen, I totally forgot to mention the other founding member of the LG, and I felt terrible about that. So if you could edit this part <laughs> in, was, uh, it was myself, Eric Bruggleworth, Derek Vormach, and David Bloom, because David joined us like literally like a month later. It was kind of instrumental in the early days. So, yeah, I totally forgot about him. I feel so bad. So we can edit that in. So he doesn't you're feel left fine. out of this. We'll, we'll, we'll roll with it. You're all good, man. And <laughs> uh, you know what? You would hope that they, they would still be listening by this point. We can we can hope that they're still listening right now. <laughs> David, where am I? Like, keep listening. Gavin, as far as, you know, uh, uh, I know there was a discussion on, on, I guess, the authentic campaigner about starting events and, and some of those key things like, you know, keeping it small in the beginning. Don't like, you know, don't play in an event that you want a thousand reenactors to be there. I mean, don't do unrealistic goals, you know, be realistic, plan small in the beginning. And if mother nature gets in the way, it gets in the way and have a backup plan. Um, and the number one thing you said is you can't do it alone. So you have to have the right team, the right friends and the right guys, you know, because Another thing that people forget is we're not getting paid to do this stuff. <laughs> no. we're, all, we're all using our free time uh, to do this stuff and we do it, we do it for fun. And um, so there is a lot of blood, sweat and tears into something that we don't necessarily get paid for, but it's worthwhile for us uh, because for all of us it's the closest we can get to the real deal and, and how our ancestors and people may have uh, felt, and, and lived and, and thought back then. So uh, a lot of fun opportunities there, but guys, I know uh, we're going to, you know, kind of talk about some Florida history and I'll confess that um, I, for one, have not deep dived into Florida history. In fact, I was refreshing myself this week, just <laughs> trying to do a little research on my end. And, and there were some things that you guys are probably going to laugh at me for not knowing but like, like little, like I had no idea that Florida was like the cattle, like one of the largest cattle distributors during the war. Yep. <laughs> and salt, like huge, uh, with the salt distribution, and those are just things that, like, oh my, I didn't know that. I didn't know like beef and salt was a huge thing down there. So I'll be interested to hear. I'm learning. That's another reason I, I do this show because I'm learning too. Every episode, I've learned something new. So um. This is really new for me. So, guys, you know, Florida gets overshadowed a lot. You know, there's not, you know, there's probably not as much written on it as compared to other things during the war. So, for those listening and everything, can you kind of, in as brief a way as you can, kind of sum up the importance of uh, Florida during the war? I mean, I always contributed to, while we were the smallest state of the Confederacy, we sent 15,000 of of our sons, that number's correct, right, Gavin? About 15,000? Yep, 15,000. Uh, 15,000 mm -hmm. of our sons to go fight in the major Confederate armies. We also raised about 2,000 Union soldiers, both white and black, from oh, the wow. state of Florida. Uh, yeah, well, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the Florida Unionists later, but 
besides the manpower thing, we have a Florida representation of both major armies of the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, several Floridians were heavily involved in leadership within the Confederacy. Uh, Stephen Mallory was the only Secretary of the Navy for the during the entire war for the Confederacy. Uh, you have Edmund Kirby Smith, who later leads the Trans-Mississippi Department. He's a native from St. Augustine. You have um, General Anderson. Pat, uh, what was his first name? Was it Patton Anderson? Patton Gavin? Anderson. Yep, Patton Anderson. Oh, yeah. He's a major leader of troops in the war. So not only just for the manpower thing, but the food thing. Once Vicksburg falls in 1863, we become the Confederacy's breadbasket, especially for beef oh, wow. production. Um, indigo is being produced here. Florida, like a lot of the smaller Florida inlets and coves are still actively running blockade runners. You have the salt production coming from here. And a lot of that's being protected by the men in the interiors, just the Cal Cavalry, such as J.J. Dickinson's command and other Confederate commands that are keeping that bread line open for the Confederacy. Um, also, at the end of the war, it becomes a haven for the former Confederate government. Uh, two major players of that is come that come flee into Florida are going to be John Cabell Breckinridge, who has a very entertaining story of his escape through Florida, as well as Judah Benjamin. He actually escapes through Florida. In fact, he actually escapes within 20 miles of my house. Oh, wow. Uh, but, you know, said so we have the manpower, we have the Confederate government, the food. And then, like I said, I'll let Gavin kind of take it from here. Well, so but uh, no, um, I will. Uh, I will uh, interject there. Um, do you? So, at the outset of the war, because um, I'm just curious, at the outset of the war, um, what? How much of Florida was populated, and was every region of Florida populated at the beginning of the war? Every region is populated, but there are definitely some areas that have a larger population density than others. Uh, Palaka, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Tampa, Tallahassee, Pensacola, Apalachicola, um, New Smyrna, or some of your major towns of uh, Cedar Key, Fort Myers, uh, Fernadina. A lot of that habitation is going to be on the larger population centers are on the coast, but there are several inland coast, inland larger cities like Gainesville, for instance, Lake yeah. City. Other than that, um, you have a lot of people who settle in the Florida, what I like to call the Florida backcountry, and that is a result of the Armed Occupation Act of 1842, which basically said if you come to Florida and you're able to defend a certain amount of acreage, you get to keep that land for free or at a very discounted rate. So that's actually what helps create the Florida plantation classes because they come here post the Second Seminole War, established many large plantations, of which uh, one of the best preserved examples today is Gamble plantation down in near Bradenton and they create a whole thing you also have the cattle industry is huge in the central part of the state and the most people who live in the interior are going to be a lot of your poor farming class but again like I said I'll kind of let Gavin tuck in from there yeah so what what Florida obviously lacked with manpower is mostly attributed to the amount of people that lived in the state at the time um, you're talking about there's only 75,000 free men living in the state of Florida um, and they are a bit scattered out, but most of your centralized cities now are where they all kind of focused in at. Um, and one of the things that you have to consider when looking at Florida, and I think a lot of people kind of skirt over it, um, Florida succeeds as one of the first states. Um, and we were number that, 
part of that reason is because of so many immigrants moving into Florida, and I use the term immigrant lightly, but the, the, the generalization is, is that most of the guys that had just moved to Florida are from the South Georgia region. They're from North and South Carolina. They're from Virginia. They're from Kentucky. Um, and there's a few Texans that squeeze their way over to Florida, too, because there's a, it, it's a new frontier, basically, during this time period. And it remains a frontier up until to, uh, the 1880s and 1890s. Um, so when you break that down and look at, well, you know, why would Florida secede so soon? It's because it, it really is your core heart of the Confederacy. It's all those southern states that just moved to Florida um, to, to start a new life, to start these plantations. That's where the money is. Um, and, and they backed that up pretty fast. Um, now, when you kind of branch out from there, when they send 15,000 men off to fight, that's generally every able-bodied man in the state of Florida. Um, and even, even Dickinson himself, who is really considered the guy that, you know, keeps Florida independent uh, all the way until 65, is, is a native Virginian um, by birth. Uh, and, and a lot of these guys were. Um, so they're, they're really kind of striving off of, uh, of that, the, the Southern cause and the Southern push for independence because um, they're all in a generalized location all at one time. Um, and if you go back and you, you read through uh, Florida secession ordinance and some of the meetings they had in the House, it, it gets quite entertaining just how patriotic, you know, they, they were acting over, the, over this, their, their newfound statehood. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, 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 they're the breadbasket of the Confederacy moving forward. And I want to say by 64, 80% of the beef uh, that's going to, to Lee and going to Bragg are, are almost all from Florida, uh, not to mention the salt, the fruit. Um, they're, they're still very much in wartime capability. Uh, and I think Florida's geographic location gave them that opportunity. They're, they're on a peninsula. The blockade's really not working for the state of Florida. And the only part of Florida that really truly stays in federal hands is the eastern coast because it's yep. separated by the St. John's River. That's the Union Army's buffer um, to secure that side. Um, now, things maybe could be slightly different if the St. John's River isn't creating that boundary. Um, but most of the battles, most of the skirmishes and everything prove how vital the St. John's River was to, to the Florida war effort and to the Confederacy's war effort overall. Um, so I, I do think they get, they get um, skirted on a little bit. It's actually pretty funny. Uh, in 61, uh, when all the states are seceding, things are getting really hyped up. Uh, the Harper's Weekly po published an article about Florida and referenced them as the smallest tadpole in the pool of secession. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they do come out swinging in the later years of the war and they prove how vital they were. Um, and really, I think that that even gets more exacerbated by their governor, the wartime governor, John Milton. Um, this guy in lesser terms was super, super radical <laughs> about Southern independence. Uh, he's one of the few guys that I know of that was a state governor that walked around rocking a, a double breasted Confederate frock coat. Oh, wow. um, he had, yes. he had these, Un ungodly gnarly sized stars uh on, on, uh -huh. his, um, on his uh collars um so he was very very proud and so proud to the point to where his last address um to the house of representatives in florida was that he would prefer death to um union again and of course it's still debated to this day um how exactly he was killed but most historians would agree that that he committed suicide towards the end of the war so a, a lot of that rests on his shoulders he's very very proud of the men he sent um, to the west and to the east, um, raised was pretty influential in raising money, raising troops. Um, so I, I think uh, 
outside of that, Milton deserves a lot of the credit for keeping the Confederacy alive for as long as it was. Wow. And, um, and you know, um, I was curious, too, that uh, what role did the Walt Disney Plantation play during the war? <laughs> well, I mean, they really supplied heavily the amount of churros and Mickey ears that went to the Confederate War. <laughs> oh, so, yes. So Florida supplied churros and uh, salt and cattle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. All right. But no, uh, no, this is fascinating stuff, guys, because uh, like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm learning this, too. So uh, it's interesting. And, and like you said, how um, uh, there was a lot of pride in, in Florida in the beginning like that because they're a new state and and secession is kind of feeding on uh, of that pride. And so uh, um, so leading kind of into that. So the war is beginning. They've seceded and. Um, and Walter, you pointed out too. So you had fifteen thousand Confederate soldiers, and around two thousand some Union soldiers supplied by uh, Florida, which is for both. That's very small compared to northern states and other southern states. So um, I'd like to give you guys an opportunity to kind of highlight some of the brigades, units, regiments, uh, Union or Confederate in their role or you know i know we can't talk about everybody but if you want to roll with anyone you like uh and then you know because we have uh, uh you noted earlier there's uh perry and lang's florida brigade at gettysburg and the army northern virginia um you know where they served in army northern virginia for most of the war and then he had uh the florida brigade in the army of tennessee and there was there were one or two brigades in the army of tennessee for florida Sort of. So I'll kind of talk a little bit about the Western guys and a little bit about the Unionist Floridians. And I'll let Gavin handle the Eastern boys. That's like his big thing. Oh, yeah. Fine. Go ahead. So um, in the West, you have several Florida regiments. Uh, you have the 1st Florida and the 3rd Florida Infantries that get consolidated after the Battle of Perryville. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the 4th Florida, which is actually my personal favorite in the Western Brigade or the Western Regiments. Uh, you have the 6th Florida, the 7th Florida, and the 1st Florida Dismounted Cavalry, which is just an infantry unit called that. <laughs> they also will have a couple batteries of artillery represented in the Army of Tennessee. And then here in the state, you would have the two Florida Unionist regiments. You would be the 1st and 2nd Florida U.S. Cavalries, of which only the 1st Florida was actually mounted. And they also get a section of artillery which were actually 12-pound mountain howitzers. The second Florida U.S. would most of the time be fighting as an infantry unit. So they were equipped. They looked like standard Billy Yank, carried infields, had knapsacks. And they did several of the raids here in the area I live at, actually. But going back to the Confederate regiments, um, they kind of show up in all the major battles. Uh, the first Florida is heavily involved in the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, the first and third both are heavily involved at Perryville. The first Florida actually begins its baptism by fire and the, and the siege of defense of Pensacola. So they go way back. Um, but what's going to happen is all these Florida units are kind of spread out. The 6th and 7th are sent up to East Tennessee. And the other regiments are all serving with Bragg over in, out there in you know, Mur Murfreesboro, Tullahoma, those guys that were with Bragg are actually sent over to Johnston during the siege of Vicksburg as part of the army of relief. Okay. But the first battle that all the Floridians fight on the same battlefield, be it in different brigades is going to be Chickamauga. You're going to have Stovall's brigade, which is going to have the first and third Florida consolidated and the fourth Florida. 
And then you're going to have Triggs Brigade, which is going to have the 1st Florida dismounted, the 6th and the 7th Floridas. And they both are really hotly engaged at Chickamauga. They both talk about the 1st. and uh, So if you're at Chickamauga Battlefield, the Stovall's Brigade boys are going to fight where the Florida Monument is. They're going to be heavily involved in the actions at Kelly Field. And the men of Triggs Brigade are going to be involved towards the Brotherton Cabin and Brotherton Field area, at which they get both of them pay dear prices for their heroics. They assault multiple times against entrenched and dug in Federals. Um, a big highlight, though, is during the evening of September 20th, the 7th Florida, which has done repeated assaults on Snodgrass Hill, actually begins moving up on the 21st Ohio. A member of the 21st Ohio yells out, what troops are you? And a 7th Florida wag goes, Jeff Davis's. <laughs> and the Floridian, uh, the Federals, excuse me, believe that they're friendlies of Jeff Davis's division. All of a sudden, oh. out of nowhere, <laughs> the guy who called what troops are you has a pistol in his face from a lieutenant in the 7th Florida who basically tells him to shh. And these Floridians <laughs> rush up the hill out of nowhere and actually grab the, I want to say it's the regimental flag of the 21st Ohio out of nowhere. Uh, that's kind of one of that last actions at Chickamauga. So they're heavily involved there. And the first battle that they're all part of the Florida Brigade in the West is going to be Missionary Ridge. And on November 25th, 1863, they are heavily involved in the action of Missionary Ridge when the uh, Federals start to break through. Mm -hmm. The yeah. Floridians actually make a stand at Bragg's headquarters, and he basically yells, if not for me, do it for your God and do it for country. So the Floridians actually stand their ground for several minutes which buys time for the rest of the troops on Missionary Ridge to escape. Uh, they get no recognition for that. And it wasn't actually until I read by the noble dairy of her sons, and they mentioned the full account of Bragg. She writes a, like a thank you letter to the Florida Brigade saying, hey, you know, thanks oh, for wow. your actions. Uh, so much so that when Joe Johnson arrives in 1864 to take command of the Army of Tennessee, he actually authorizes the first and fourth Florida to get one of the special like second nationals that was done up. So everyone got battle flagged, but the first and fourth actually received this really cool like second national with mm -hmm. their regiment on it. They also had a battle flag as well. They had both, but so basically four Indians in the West are now going to fight all the 64 campaign. They're heavily involved in the fighting around Atlanta from, you know, Rosaka all the way down. They get really chewed up in the battle of uh, Dallas What's going to happen there is I got to remember the date of the Battle of Dallas. Well, that's is that that's the one that's also known as Pickett's Mill, right? So it's part of the it's Dallas New Hope Pickett's Mill line. Yes. Okay. Uh, all May 64, right? Yeah, May 64. So that's going to be May 28th. This happens. I had to go to the book really fast. I bookmarked this so I can remember dates. Uh, <laughs> You're doing good, Walter. You're doing good. Thank you. They actually talk about um, what happens is there's a Bates division is ordered to launch an attack. Well, Bates ends up countermanding the orders for every brigade but two, the Kentucky Orphan Brigade and the Florida Brigade. So at the signal of firing of artillery, the Floridians and the Kentuckians launch an attack across open ground and get absolutely chewed up. Uh, yeah. Hugh Black said basically that it was the most worthless waste of life. The Kentuckians and the Federals say the Floridians fight heroically, making a last-ditch stand in this field, basically, and they get chewed up. Afterwards, it was said the Floridians were never the same after that moment in their their battle career. But they fight on. They're part of the fall. And uh, they're going to be part of the Franklin National Campaign. And that's the one where you see a lot of their flags end up getting captured, uh, which 
first off at the Battle of Overall Creek and then the Battle of Nashville when they're defending Shy Hill. So mm, yeah. the remnant of them ends up going to North Carolina and they're going to fight at Bentonville. And then Bentonville's their last battle where they all have individual regimental numbers. Uh, after that point, they're so destroyed that the entire Florida Brigade becomes the first Florida consolidated and they fight as like one regiment until the end when they all surrender in North Carolina with Joe Johnston. So that's the Western wow. Brigade. Yeah. We, uh, um, uh, to kind of follow up uh, on a couple of things, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's really uh, depressing after Atlanta, really, or after Franklin, just the Army of Tennessee, just how beat up they were, and especially the Bentonville campaign and just seeing how small the order of battle is. Or, um, yeah, it's funny you mention that, too, because there's a there's a quote I always like to point out from that campaign from a drummer boy, and I want to say he was like one of the North Carolina Reserves regiments. Yeah, and he talked about watching the remnant of the army of Tennessee launch their attack. And he goes, they went in with the swag of veterans, but it was so sad to see how close the flags were together. Talk about how small the regiments were at that point. Yeah, no, it was it's ridiculous. Like, uh, um, I, I mean, I think it's, they were they were worse, and you know, and we'll we'll get there too. But they, I mean, they were. All, I mean, to me, I think the Confederate Army of Tennessee was in worse shape than the Army Northern Virginia when they surrendered. Oh, uh, or remnant of men left, and uh, but you know, going back to um, Chickamauga, um, that monument, the Florida monument, that's one of the first monuments you really see when you get into the park, uh, right? I mean, really, is that is that what field is that right there where the monument is? Um, I forgot the the actual name of that field, and Lee White's now going to murder me in my sleep tonight. <laughs> but uh, that's going to be pushing towards the Kelly Field, and that's where the Floridians and Stonewall yeah. are heavily involved. It's a nice, it's a nice monument to go check that out. And um, I was going to say uh, before we move on, like, is there anything else kind of like that uh, visibly? That uh, are there any other monuments or, or things like that for the Western Floridians that people can see? Um, well, there's several of the battlefields will have like you know the standard National Park Service metal markers for the Floridians, but in terms yeah. of like actual battlefield monuments, the only one I know of in the West is going to be now at Franklin on Winstead Hill. There's now one to the Floridians there, and oh, there's a yeah. very small one at Vicksburg actually to them. Gotcha. While they're not involved in the siege of Vicksburg, they're part of Joe Johnston. In fact, that's another <laughs> battle they fight heavily in. Is Joe Johnston's Battle of Jackson, Mississippi? They capture like. A whole regiment's worth of equipment there and flags and everything, like especially the first and third Florida. In fact, at Jackson, the first and third Florida was so ecstatic because they got they said Yankee black hats and new infield rifles. Uh, they talk about that in their accounts. Gotcha. Wow, that's really interesting. But uh, um, you know, um, um, right now uh, we can go ahead and and hear about um, the Floridians and the. The Eastern Theater, and then if you like, Walter, we can go back and talk about some of the Union troops. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. So, Gavin, yeah, uh, tell us about uh, Florida troops serving in the Eastern Theater of the War. So, yeah, basically, uh, all the way up until roughly March or April, it was just three primary units that are in the Army of Northern Virginia, um, the 2nd, the 5th, and the 8th Florida regiments. Um, now, they weren't instantly brigaded together either. Um, they had some separated time, much like the units in the AOT did. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but they're there during most of all the major engagements too, uh, especially early on in 62. Um, they, they get a lot of fame and a lot of glory at uh, Williamsburg and Seven Pines and Fraser's Farm, places like that. Um, they're also there uh, at Sharpsburg. Um, they're, they're separated at Sharpsburg as well. Um, I believe the second and fifth are under prior uh, and they get rushed into the bloody lane and they're a part of the, the, the wrongly ordered retreat debacle. Um, the eighth actually ends up over uh, in the cornfield with the Louisianans. That's who they're attached to at the time. So they get a little limelight there. Um, not a lot of the Floridians actually ended up making it to Sharpsburg. Um, I think in the second prim- or the second primarily less than 75 guys ended up actually making it to Sharpsburg to get rushed into the bloody lane. Um, so as you can imagine, you know, this brigade size element of 75 dudes gets rushed in like they're going to make a huge difference. Um, well, you know, you say that, and uh, I just have to say, uh, I was just looking at the Antietam Order of Battle and the numbers, and it really is insane how tiny the Confederate Army was in Antietam or <laughs> Sharpsburg. And I mean, you see these regiments that have like 30, 40 guys in them. Yeah. And I know that was a really hard campaign leading up to that point, but crazy. Um, but they'll they'll make it through that um, basically by the skin of their teeth. Um, they get reorganized afterwards um into into what's considered um Perry's brigade moving forward um they they get put in anderson's division uh rolling into the uh campaign the invasion of uh, pennsylvania going into gettysburg campaign and i think that 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 point moving forward is really when the the florida brigade starts to gain a bit of its reputation um throughout that campaign they're they're really considered the rear guard of the confederacy um as one professor at florida state university put it um uh, they, they arrive at Gettysburg late on the second day. Um, they, they do a little bit of skirmishing uh, with Wilcox's Alabamians uh, right outside of Spanglish Farm where they rest for the night. Um, sorry, they, the night of the first. Um, they get up on the second with the rest of uh, Anderson's division, and they're going to go in on the assault. Uh, and simply put, the Floridians' orders were to guide on Wilcox's left, and you'll receive no further orders. Um, that's how simple they attributed Lang, who was in command of the brigade at this time. Um, just, just guide on the Alabamians and you'll be fine. Um, uh, and I, I think that uh, that story really over the past 20 years has come to light about their actions and what they accomplished at Gettysburg um, because they, they make it just about as far as, as Wright's Georgians uh, and the Alabamians do. Um, and in that pivotal moment, Lang mentions uh, that they had never seen so many dead federals uh and you got to think these guys were were there at sharpsburg um but as they cross emmitsburg road he makes the mention that they had never seen um so many dead federals in their front and that with proper reinforcements they probably could have secured the ridge um and i think one story uh that kind of attributes to the whole actions of that day and you know we just did the first minnesota event up at gettysburg at that same time that the first minnesota charges down into wilcox's alabamians over to their right, the 19th Maine, who's been laying behind a stone wall for the past 45 minutes, completely unnoticed. Um, a couple of Union commanders actually told them to stand up and, and bayonet some of the Union troops that were fleeing the Emmitsburg Road to make them to stay. Uh, and the colonel of the 19th Maine basically told him, no, my men are going to stay behind this behind this stone wall. And as Lang reorganizes the brigade and they, they uh, continue the assault, is about the time that the first Minnesota comes crashing into the Alabamians. And as they're making their way up the ridge, suddenly the 19th Maine pops up from behind this stone wall. And one of the things to consider about the Florida Brigade at Gettysburg is they're only 745 men strong. Yeah. Um, 
so by the time they make it to the crest of the ridge, the 19th main stands up and the 19th main is 750 men strong. Their regimental strength outweighs that of a whole brigade of Floridians. Um, but they stand up and they fire a volley into the four brigade, which basically shocks them. Um, they say that the, the entire brigade withered like a leaf in the wind. Um, the entire color guard of the eighth is cut down. The color bearer of the second fort is killed. Um, and Lang, looking to his right and to his left and no longer seeing Wilcox or Wright, decided that he, he basically had to pull back and give back up all the ground that the Floridians had just gained throughout the day. Um, but the, the sad reflection on that story actually comes on the third uh, when they're ordered at the tail end of Pickett's charge to go in and support um, Kemper, who had just been uh, outflanked, or Kemper and Garnett, who had just been outflanked by the Vermonters. Um, mm-hmm. And all the Floridians recounted that they that it was suicide that they that they don't really understand why they were sent in, but but nobody really you know answered it to to any questions. They just got up and did exactly what they were ordered to do. Um, so basically, as Armistead's men are, are peeking at the high water mark, here comes what's left of uh, Wilcox and Lang scurrying over outside of Spangler's Farm. And, and the confusion of the smoke at the base of Cemetery Ridge, they crash right into to the 16th Vermont. Um, and it causes this, this huge disarray. They're, they're completely unorganized. Uh, the second Florida ends up losing their colors. Um, it's a pretty bad hand-to-hand combat until they're forced to, to pull back again. Um, but they basically assaulted the same ground twice at Gettysburg. Uh, which yeah, and that, that's incredible. Um, and they make their own pickets charge, I mean, by themselves. <laughs> it's, it really but, is. They're... they're they're totally secluded, and at that point in the closing of the battle, almost all the artillery is focused on Lang and Wilcox because uh, they're yeah. the only units left on the field. Um, yeah, that, that was useless. The, the entire brigade ends up suffering uh, over 60% casualties, uh, which is, in fact, the highest uh, level of casualties inflicted on any brigade, uh, the Confederate Army at Gettysburg. Um, well, you know, and there's a lot of... Which, uh, which that's that's crazy to think when you when you have a state that supplies some of the fewest men at Gettysburg get one of the brutalest casualty totals, and you know uh, I was just curious myself because I was reading up on on the second day of Gettysburg the other day, and um, do you know in your own research like they get beat up two days in a row, but like how many men did they lose on each day? And like, how many men did they actually have when they went in on July 3rd? It's really hard to say because there's not very mental, very many regimental histories yeah. Or, yeah. or records that kind of attribute what they had left. We know that they were seriously lacking officers on the third day. Um, in the Fleming memoirs, he talks a little bit about um, having to take command of, of the regiment um, and they have lieutenants and captains filling in and other uh, regimental uh, duties. Um, but uh, assumingly so, if based upon what I read has to be even close to correct, I would assume that on the third day they probably went from that 745-man strength and they probably did the second assault with roughly 500. Um, that, that's kind of what I would attribute it as. And they were so tired on the retreat back on the third day that guys are getting cut down because they're walking back. Um, there's guys passing out from heat exhaustion. There's guys dying from heat stroke. And these guys are from Florida. <laughs> um, but th- that's just the, the hard fighting that they've been involved in for the past 48 hours. Um, oh, man. Uh, and Fleming talks about walking side by side with an officer, and, and they're jokingly talking about how hard the fighting is 
uh, when the officer standing next to him gets struck with a with a with a shell to the back of the head. Um, they yeah. they don't they don't reflect very well on the Virginians. Uh, I will say that. <laughs> um, they 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 do they do say that the second and third lines of pickets pickets brigades were uh, cowards essentially. Um, that's not my opinion. That's theirs. <laughs> um, but they, they do, after the Battle of Gettysburg, do a lot of fighting uh, amongst officer cadres and newspapers to basically gather back the reputation that they had suddenly lost in those two days. Um, Wright, for example, wrote a letter to his wife. He wasn't actually there during the assault, um, but somehow the letter got uh, caught up in uh, to some newspapers and they published it. The Floridians were a bunch of cowards and they never made the assault to begin with. Um <laughs> Lane got so hard pressed that he actually went and found Wright, slung the newspaper at his feet, and they got in, in, in an argument entire, in front of all the Georgians, uh, where wow. Wright actually admitted that he was wrong and that he would write a resubmittal to reprint it in the newspaper. Um, so a lot of that argument has actually carried into in, into to recent years, up until the 2000s. There were still historians arguing back and forth over what major role the Floridians played. Um, that part wow. of me, I think that's what's so important about what the Liberty Guard does now is to try to branch out these stories and make it understood that Florida had a lot more to do with these these battles and these engagements than what was previously considered. Um, and, and, and before we get off of, of Gettysburg, uh, one more note, you know, there, there is a monument to, to Florida on uh, Confederate Avenue over there on Seminary Ridge. And isn't that a newer, a more modern monument on the battlefield? It's not necessarily newer. Uh, I would say it's probably one of the newer ones. Um, but that stuff was laid out previously because um, Lang and a few of his acquaintances actually went back out to Gettysburg and, and staked it all off and walked the ground oh. um, yeah. to show where the Fordians were, where to mark it out. Um, but it did take some years before that monument ever went up. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know why. I thought it was one of the ones that went up in like the 70s or something. But right, gotcha. Okay. Good deal, um, Walter. Um, yeah, um, so y'all were moving the casualties of the Floridians at Gettysburg. I actually pulled up the numbers and I got disconnected. So of okay. the 742 men who marched in the Gettysburg on July 1st, 1861, 300 would fall on July 2nd, and 161 would fall on July 3rd with a brigade yep. loss of 62%. So they, they were really disheartened uh, after the Gettysburg campaign. Um, they, they did try really hard. to Okay, I'm back again. And um, the newspapers and stuff weren't necessarily helping, uh, but they did eventually get reorganized uh, and, and they go into the Bristow campaign uh, with, with kind of a lackluster attitude as well. Um, but going into to, to 60, mid-64 is really when they kind of garner that strength back. Um, Lee actually sends a letter to, to Governor Milton in the beginning of 64 asking if there's any more regiments that can be brought from Florida. Um, he was he was genuinely curious if the if these fighting men from Florida had any more to give, um, and eventually they do. The, the regiments that had just fought at Old Lusty get reorganized into the 9th, 10th, and 11th, and, and they'll get sent to the Army of Northern Virginia as well um, to kind of resupply what's left of the Florida Brigade. Um, moving into moving into those campaigns, um, they, they do a little a lot of hard fighting. Uh, one of the things that I think really really boosts back the idea of the Whirlwind Brigade, which they end up getting nicknamed. Um, is at Cold Harbor. Um, they're there at the breakthrough. They're one of the units that's in reserve. Um, at, at that point in time, um, Francis Friendling's younger brother 
uh, will hop up and he'll actually lead what's left of the brigade in uh, to, to kind of stunt that assault. Um, I think that the Battle of Cold Harbor might have been a little bit differently had the 4th Brigade not been shoved into the gap in the line. Um, and they suffered pretty heavily there. Fleming's killed. Um, he, um, uh, so it, m- moving forward, the 4th the Brigade loses a lot of its its luster after the 63 campaigns. Um, but, but in 64, when they're resupplied, they're, they're ready to go. They're there. Um, they, they get moved around a lot. They're there at Petersburg. Uh, they're there for the overland campaign, et cetera. Um, now towards the war is really when they truly start to get beat up on because they're back preserving those rear guard actions, um, for the army of North Virginia. And I think the, the closing of their story really comes, uh, during the final days, especially at Cedar Creek. Um, when most of the Florida Brigade is completely cut off, trying to secure the Army's uh, retreat. Um, now, when they get to Appomattox, there's not very many of them left at all. Uh, of what's what was formerly the 2nd, 5th, and the 8th, only about 150 will surrender. Um, so you're talking about 3,000 men, and suddenly at Appomattox, there's less than 150 making up three full-size Florida regiments. Um, the 9th, 10th, and 11th don't fare much better going into those campaigns. Um, they, they barely muster a few hundred guys at the surrender Appomattox too. Um, there's a lot of little itty bitty stories and details I could go into. Of course, I don't want to spend three and a half hours doing it. Sure you do guys. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I do encourage anybody that's just genuinely curious to, to, to dig into what the Florida brigade consisted of after 1863. Um, cause there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of decent material. Um, and, and they were, they were vital. They were vital to Lee. He expressed that many times. Um, so I, I think w- without the Florida Brigade involved, there's quite a few instances in a lot of those key battles that could have gone very differently. Well, you know, um, my biggest takeaway from what both of you just talked about is, uh, is how similar stories <laughs> the Floridians have in both armies, both Confederate armies there. And especially 1863 being, being the turning point almost for each of those brigades. Um, uh, you know, uh, for uh, Floridians after Chattanooga Missionary Ridge and then after Gettysburg, they really uh, suffered a lot and impacted them. But but how about this? Um, uh, Gavin, why don't you give me uh, just one one anecdote, one story of a Eastern story and, and uh, Walter, you can share like a, a Western account, like a Western story. Oh, boy, let me start digging. Yeah, well, Gavin, you yeah, whatever you like to share, Gavin. There, there's there, there's so many that I could share. Uh, one that I did pull out that I wanted to say that I think really captures the sacrifices made by such few men from such a small state. They're so secluded. They're cut off. Um, and that's going into July of 1864. Most of the new regiments, the second, fifth, and the eighth. Their terms of service are set. The terms of service are set to expire July the thirteenth of eighteen sixty four. Um, they get together and they have a special meeting, um, and they draft a resolution declaring themselves. And, and this is what they say: They say, "Determined never to give up the cause, and regard as traitors all citizens of the Confederate States who are willing to give up without first exerting all their influence and sacrificing their property and lives, if need be, to maintain it." Now, that resolution raised so much inspiration in the 40 units at the time that their devotion actually got praise from newspapers. And the Richmond Inquirer had an article published, captioned, They come, they come, 
gallant little Florida has the floor. Uh, and actually, the Confederate Congress actually honors the Floridians, and they pass a joint resolution of thanks in 1864 after, after they have that vote. Um, so for me, it, it's not a, not a gritty account, but it's more inspiring that these guys suffered so much, and in mid-'64, they were still willing to continue. And and that's what makes things interesting too. The more we we deep dive into these things, is like it doesn't have to be a battle story that gets our attention. You know, it's like it's the things that happen in between that get more interesting. The, the more we study, so um, that is that is uh, interesting. And uh, Walter, uh, if you still need, do you still need a minute, Walter? Or do you have? Oh, something man, like- I, I think I finally picked which one I want to do, I and mean, that took me. Some <laughs> I love I love the Western. I love both the Florida Brigades. Uh, before we continue, though, I have to say, though, Gavin, my favorite quote about the Eastern Floridians is the one from the federal soldier who talks about taking that kid from the Fifth Florida prisoner at Gettysburg. And the kid basically cries out, this, why does Bobby Lee always send the Fifth to the front? <laughs> wow. uh, but um, where, where did West, that quote come from, Walter? That was from Gettysburg, actually. A federal prisoner, a federal soldier talks about capturing a young soldier from the Fifth Florida at the aftermath, I think it's July 3rd. And the kid was like crying, and he goes, "Why are you crying, young man?" He goes, "Because Bobby Lee always sends the fifth to the front." Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yep. but in the West, I think the story of Lieutenant Shaw, the Fourth Florida, always gets to me. And he, um, he was one of those guys who was like the all-around good guy in a regiment. He served as like sergeant major, and the men loved him. And he really wanted to become an officer. So he finally becomes a lieutenant in 64 and literally within a few weeks is killed in action at the Battle of Dallas. And his death leaves such an impact on that regiment that in the middle of the night under fire, like several of his comrades crawl into no man's land to save his body. Uh, That was just a camaraderie that these regiments had, right? Like these and they talk about how much that death affects them because even the night before Shaw talks about how he has a premonition of his death and Washington Ives talks about sharing his blanket with them. And Shaw was like excited. He was finally a lieutenant, but nervous that he felt like, felt like something bad was on the horizon for him. Then literally within a few hours, he's dead, killed in action. Uh, and that's just what always gets to me too. Or like, you know, these men, they build that camaraderie. And then and a few hours later, that camaraderie is ended forever on a battlefield. That now has an historical marker. We go, wow, look at this. But the hell and horror these men saw around them, you know, and how they bonded over that. I think the Shaw story from the fourth always kind of stuck out to me for that reason. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, really, uh, it's the words that we have uh, from these guys that really help us. Because, you know, when we go to a battlefield and we see just a field and uh, a marker, you know, it's still we still need some added help to really understand what, what happened there. And, uh, um, but I'll give you guys an opportunity too. And I think Walter, uh, you were going to dive in, maybe talk a little bit about um, the union uh, troops from Florida. And that's also a two part story. And again, we're to keep here for three hours, Steve. So Steven, so there you go. Like you wanted Florida history. You got the two. Hey, right dive in, man. Uh, all four. So- <laughs> Gavin kind of talk about the Confederate regiments that fight that are from Florida that fight in the state. But here in the state, we raised two white regiments and one African-American regiment organically from Florida. Of course, I mentioned this earlier, the first Florida cavalry, as long as along with the first Florida artillery, they will serve in the Pensacola area. They're formed at Fort Barrancas. They're actually part of the Blakely campaign. Um, They also do a lot of the raids into like southern Alabama, southern Georgia. 
Uh, but the second 40 U.S. is one that's kind of become one of my big interests of Union Floridians because they're a bunch, they're mostly Confederate deserters, although oh, wow. they're like anti conscription, anti planter class. They flee, they're anti slavery, they flee into the swamps, they make their way to the coast, they get under protection of the Federal Navy. And the Union government's like, hey, look at all these, look at all these like military aged men we have. It's a former regiment. <laughs> so they gather like veteran officers and non commissioned officers from troops stationed in Key West. They're brought up along the Gulf Coast to train these guys. And the second floor of the U.S. is heavily involved in fighting here in the state. Uh, they raid Brooksville, which is 30 minutes down the road. They're going to raid, they're going to be part of the defense of Cedar Key, the Battle of Fort Myers, which is us and Palmetto Ranch, Texas, have the debate of who has the southernmost land battle of the Civil War. Uh, but Fort Myers is usually considered it. Um, and another unit that was kind of raised in the area I live in was called the Cal Cavalry. And they're very much a unique regiment. They are a commissary regiment that are armed, but their whole goal is protecting all the cattle drives. So this regiment kept the Confederacy fed. And they would be involved in several firefights around the state as well. Of course, their big one is the Battle of Fort Myers, just like the second Florida U.S. And they're also some of the last Confederates to surrender in June of 1865. Oh, wow. And a kind of a cool material culture story is before they surrender, they're all wearing a motley assortment of civilian clothing and shotguns and all kinds of crazy stuff. They talk about going to the Confederate uh depots in brooksville florida and saying listen uh you never gave us clothing so we're taking it because the confederacy collapsed so they stole the clothing from the confederate central government uh there's a photo of a cat wearing a blue gray cruiser uniform which the theory is that it's from this scenario and they surrender a few days later in their brand new clothing um so they literally wanted to make sure they look cool before they surrendered so fun material (laughs) culture story of the day if you ever want to bully by uh, but I guess that's kind of like some of the weird ones in my area, and I like kind of Gavin touch on his big love. <laughs> um, one of the one of the things that I think is vitally important when you're talking about the importance of the Confederacy's role for substance is the units that stayed behind in the state of Florida to guard that. Um, to guard the cattle, to guard, guard, guard the salt works, to guard those still active plantations. Um, and I think a lot of that light has to be shined on the second floor of cavalry. Now, with that being said, Beauregard and all of his geniuses, one of them was not helping the Floridians in Florida. <laughs> um, they, they do spin the tale of ragged rebel. And I think these guys really epitomize that. Um, the, these guys have an assortment of, of arms. They have an assortment of uniforms. They are basically running on everything that they can find, everything they can get. And they're really putting guerrilla warfare to the test. And it's working extremely well. And one of the guys that really, really strives on that is Captain J.J. Dickinson. Um, now, Dickinson, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is, is a native of Virginia. He moves down to Florida and he found he finds a Finds a company of, uh, of soldiers in Marion County, um, ends up folding into the second Florida Cavalry. Now, they protest in 1862 that they do not want to leave the state. They're Cartesian Rangers. They signed up to defend Florida, and they're not going to leave. Um, that does stir a little bit of animosity, but for, for what sake's given, they do end up remaining in Florida. Um, and it, it proves very, very vital. Uh, the federal soldiers on the East Coast feared the man. Uh, they had a, a 
lackluster of nicknames for him. Uh, Swamp Fox of the Confederacy, the Knight of the Silver Spurs. Uh, more jokingly, they called him Dixie. Um, and everything west of the St. Johns River was considered Dixie's land because if you went over there, there's a good possibility you're going to get captured. Um, and with a small handful of troops, and when I mean small handful, Dickinson never really commanded more than 750 men at a time. Um, and even though being a cavalry unit, they were mostly on foot. Most of them were infantry units. Um, and for artillery, they managed to scrounge up a, a three-inch ordnance rifle, and then they also had a, a Dahlgren howitzer off of, of a boat um, that they decided to put wheels on, and they lugged it around too. Um, <laughs> but they, they, they end up a, uh, ambushing the Ohioans in Gainesville. Uh, it's, it's a major victory for them. Uh, they end up overrunning Palaka several times. Uh, they run multiple very successful raids on the east coast of the river, which they were doing at night using flats boats. Um, they're one of the only units in history that securely captures a naval gunboat while it's still on the water. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they, they end up capturing the Columbine in 1864. They burn it to the ground, um, capturing a, a slew of soldiers, slew of ordnance. Uh, that keeps them fueled for a while. Uh, and to really kind of add to what these guys were experiencing, um, there's a few accounts of them at the Battle of Lusty, which Dickinson, in all his glory, didn't actually get to experience Old Lusty. You know, the largest battle in Florida he actually never made it to. Um, but some of his, some of the companies of the 2nd Florida did. Um, and they talk about chasing the Federal Army back to Jacksonville. And they come across crates that have been thrown out of the wagons because they're trying to get Federal soldiers into them to move them off the battlefield as fast as possible. They find all these crates of hardtack on the sides of the road, and they're covered in blood. Well, they're so hungry that they're picking up the hardtack, scraping the blood off, eating it. They're, wow. they're passing back um, dirt-covered uh, chunks of salt pork, and the guys are cutting off a slice, handing it back, cutting off a slice, handing it back. Um, so these guys were, were really, really in it, and duty and honor was very, very high on their list, and they, they, they talk about that exponentially. Um, so much so that with all their successes, they've never lost a battle. They, ne they never had a failure of a campaign in the state of Florida. And in 1865, when they ride to Waldo to surrender, the second actually ends up getting in a fist fight because some of the soldiers mentioned that they're glad the war's over, they're glad they're going to surrender, and the rest of them want to continue fighting. So a fist fight breaks out before they ever get to Waldo because they're in disagreement over that. Um, and one of the soldiers in the second accounts, he said, I don't understand why we're surrendering. We've never lost a fight. And as, as, as jokingly that might sound to these guys, it was very, very true. Yeah. And a, a lot of the success of getting beef out of Florida and getting salt out of Florida and keeping the major armies fed is attributed to these little bands of Confederates that kept Florida firmly in the Confederate hands throughout the entire war. And if you if you really dig in and look back, Florida is one of the only states outside of Texas uh, that really still has mostly Confederate troll, uh, control going into the surrender. Because uh, geographically, really, it's hard for the Union to get down there. <laughs> I mean, uh, as far as like uh, the coastal war, but it, it's like, uh, you know, until Georgia falls or Alabama falls or what have you, I mean, there's really no clear way to get into Florida. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. And, and every campaign that the Federal Army tries to launch has to be launched from the East Coast. They have mm -hmm. to cross the St. John's. And once yeah. they're on the western side of Florida and they're cut off from the St. John's, they're they're basically out there alone. They have to go about their campaign, their raid, whatever it is they were trying to accomplish. They're going to be cut off from Union reinforcements. Yeah. And most yes. of the time, that proved very fatal for every unit that attempted to do it. 
Yeah, because it's interesting, too, because on the west coast of Florida, at least if we're talking central Florida, you have Cedar Key and Fort Myers and Key West. Those are like the big areas of union control on the Gulf and the southern coast. And then, of course, you have Pensacola as well. But, yeah, all the raids on the Gulf Coast side of the state are launched. And another cool thing, too, about Florida, everyone kind of glosses over a lot of the federal regiments that are here saw active service elsewhere in the war. Um, For instance, the 107th Ohio, the 75th Ohio, the 17th Connecticut. Those are all 11th Corps units. Yep, they're all 11th Corps. Exactly. And they end up up being sent down here and are involved heavily in fighting in the state. Um, Wow. The 115th New York, which we're going to get to, I'm sure we're talking about a lusty here in a bit. They're heavily involved in that. They were actually captured on mass at Harper's Ferry. Um, so like I said, again, a lot of cool Union regiments cycle through here as well. Because you have the Navy yeah. stories here. There's a lot of unique stories here in our state. So, Well, you know, uh, uh, we're winding down, and I figure uh, one uh, a big question. Yeah, if you want to sum up uh, the Battle of the Lusty, because um, that's – I mean, that's the biggest battle in, in Florida, right? I mean, uh, and yeah, that was... I mean, it was our largest Civil War battle. Well, we actually have, to me, three big battles that everyone should talk about. One is the um, bombardment of Fort Pickens and Pensacola back and forth. And I believe that's November of 61. Am I correct, Gavin? Yep. Whereas the artillery duel at Fort Pickens with Fort Barrancas and Fort McRae. Which at the uh, time is the largest artillery duel. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep, that was eventually superseded by other ones like Ruggles' Battery and Gettysburg. But side sure. a lusty fought February 20th of 1864. To me, it's one of the great examples of how not to fight a Civil War battle. <laughs> uh, the battle fought piecemeal by both armies. But the quick rundown is the battle begins in the mid-afternoon. Elements of Montgomery's, or excuse me, Hawley's Brigade, 7th uh, New Hampshire, 7th Connecticut. 8th United States Colored Troops make contact with Confederate troops. Both sides are rushing reinforcements, and the Confederates are able to win that battle simply because they're closer to their rear area where troops are massing. And the Confederates are basically wrecking brigades as they arrive. Um, The bulk, the largest portion of that battle is fought by Barton's New York Brigade, consisting of the 47th New York, 48th New York, and 115th New York. They fight the bulk of it uh, because they're there the longest. They're also the largest brigade on the field. In fact, I was talking a little about the 115th. It's kind of cool. When they went into a lusty, they recognized several of the Confederate regimental colors that it were at Harper's Ferry. Oh, they wow. were chanting Harper's Ferry, Harper's Ferry above the tent of the battle. <laughs> um, the last brigade to be involved in the federal side is going to be Montgomery's Brigade, and that's going to include the famous 54th Massachusetts. Them and the 115th New York will serve as a rear guard. Mm. But basically, the Confederates will feed a brigade in. The Confederates are massing their troops. They heavily chew up each brigade. Eventually, the Federals withdraw. The other big battle in Florida, to me, that's kind of neat is the Battle of Natural Bridge, which is fought near Tallahassee. And it actually is kind of cool because that is literally like a last-ditch Southern Army form. Like, you have the old men, the young boys. You actually have the Corps cadets from the West, West Florida Seminary that are sent to the front lines. And there's a cool story about them. As the cadets are getting on the train, of course, these are young kids. They've never seen combat. This is 65. They've only been reading about the war. Now they get to go live it. There was on the train platform when they were being sent down on the railroad, they saw this veteran of the first Florida and he pointed at his empty trouser leg. He is missing a leg. He said, this is what it waits for you up there, Sonny. Uh, yeah. 
But yeah, they uh, natural bridge is kind of neat because again, that's a hodgepodge force for both armies. Heavily involves United States colored troops as well as the First Florida U.S. Cavalry. They're heavily involved in that. What was the date of that battle in, in March fifth, eighteen sixty-five? Give me a moment. I'll get you a actual. The uh, one of the, one of the big takeaways that I'd like to point out about Lusty, and I, I do try to impress this on some people, and I think maybe I talk about it a little too much. Um, and I'm sure some of the guys that will listen to this will, will get a chuckle. And you got a chuckle out of this earlier, and I want to point this out. A lot of the federal regiments sent down for the Olusti campaign are all veteran units from the Army of the Potomac. Yeah. Um, it, it has always been curious to me what their feelings were moving forward through March North 6, Florida Pine Grove. There it is. <laughs> um, moving, <laughs> moving forward through, through North Florida Pine Groves, and they're being told that the only thing in their front is small bands of militia. Uh, and when they reach the outskirts of Old Lusty Station, they're met with hardened veterans from what used to be in Lawton's Georgia Brigade, yep. and they're seeing A and B banners flying across the field. Um, so I always kind of thought it was curious maybe what was going through their minds when they're they're told it's militia and suddenly they see A and V battle flags um, <laughs> yeah. uh, across the field. And I think that the Georgians really deserve some some glamour for helping win that victory over because there, there surely wasn't enough Floridians in the state uh, to hold back Seymour's uh, army at the time. Um, but the big takeaway for Olusty for me is that it's it's election year. They're trying to bring Florida back into the union to secure Lincoln's election. Um, but they're also trying to take a take a throat to the knife of the Confederate supply line. And to me, I think that if Olusty turns into a federal victory, if Seymour was successful, maybe you see the winding down of, mm-hmm. of the Army of Northern Virginia a lot faster. Maybe the war ends way before uh, April yeah. of 1865. Um, and, and I think that, that a lot of people maybe overlook that. And, and then also... For Olusty be as small as it is, there's about there's roughly eleven thousand men on the field, and of that, fifty five hundred of them become casualties. And if you analyze that, it's one of the bloodiest battles of the American Civil War in a quarter mile patch of North Florida. Yeah, it actually was. There was a little bit over about one thousand federal casualties and nine hundred fifty Confederate, and it was the third bloodiest battle by percentage of a Union army in the field. Oh wow. Yeah. Crazy. And uh and well the, those of you listening too, um the a lusty reenactment is on the actual battlefield, correct? <laughs> and and so I mean, is that just a portion of it? Or like when we go down and, and do events down there, like is that where the heaviest fighting was taking place? Are we doing it on the actual ground? So yeah, so, so <laughs> I think we have different answers. Me and Gavin of how many times we discussed this. A lot of where we do the battle reenactment was actually where Barton's New York Brigade fought at. It was kind of like almost their rear area. The heart of the battlefield is actually where you go buy funnel cakes and Sutler Road goods at. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah the, 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 camp at. The, true, the true heart of that battlefield is right where the monument is in the visitor center, and typically where they have Sutler Road set up is really the, the, the core of what's going on. Uh, there's units okay. being outflanked from the other side of the railroad tracks. Most of the core of the Union Army is right in the apex of that center. Um, and one of the big breakthroughs during that engagement is when the Confederate line runs out of ammunition and they're starting to pull munitions up from the railroad carts. Um, so they send in um, Bonad's battalion, uh, the 28th Georgia Heavy Artillery, um, and that kind of resurges the Confederate line. And one of the cool accounts there is, is one of the members of the 54th recounts that here they come like tigers. Um, and that kind of is what seals the fate 
for the Federal Army um, at Old Lusty. But really, the, the apex is is right there in the in, in the center of Sutton Row. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'll have to think of that next time I go down there. But, wow. Uh, I do like those opportunities where we are able to uh, – recreate these things on the actual ground that is something so we had to do that twice in florida state park service events the other besides the lusty is natural bridge is held on the actual battlefield as well so there is there is a protected area for natural bridge yep actually there's two protected areas one is owned by the state and then there's an area that's now being there's a joint effort between the american battlefield trust as well as the state of florida to acquire the rest of the battlefield gotcha well Wow. A large well, chunk massive. of that, a large, a large chunk of that battlefield had already been secured by the American Battlefield Trust, and I believe they actually handed it over to the state after securing it. Oh, did they? Okay, I know there was like a while there was kind of in limbo. Well, guys, uh, we're we're winding down, and one of my uh, rounding up uh, questions here was for both of you: What are some of your favorite books on uh, whether it be the war in Florida, regiments in Florida, diaries, memoirs, accounts, what are some of your favorites and what would you recommend to listeners that want to read and, and learn more about all that we talked about today? Yeah. Um, so mine, I have like four or five, so I'll kind of go through them as fast as I can. One is going to be uh, upon the noble daring of her sons, which is about the Western Florida brigade. You're going to have um, a small but Spartan band, which is about the Eastern Fort on Southern Service on Land and Sea. That's going to be the account of a guy who was in the 7th Florida who later on is part of the Confederate Coast Guard. So kind of talk about both elements of the Florida story. Footsteps of a Regiment, which is the first Georgia Regulars uh, journal. But he actually talks about a lot of his actions here at Florida, including a lusty. And for me, because I'm a big Fort Florida fanboy, it's got to be the Washington Ives letters, which are now published, because it's one of the best accounts of literally like a Confederate soldier saying, I got this jacket, like a blue a jean jacket with blue collar and cuff, jean trousers, jean caps, like describes verbatim uniforms coming out of Atlanta and Columbus around Chattanooga. So those are like my big ones. I'll turn it over to Gavin for what he would recommend. Yeah, so Walter definitely named um, some of my top ones as well. Um, I, I'll leave y'all with some of the lesser ones uh, that are also easily accessible online. Um, the There's a dissertation that comes out of Florida State uh, University written by Shane Turner. Um, it's called The Rear Guard of the Confederacy, the Second Florida Infantry Regiment. Um, it's free online. You can look it up at the Florida State University archives. Um, he talks all about the Second Florida Infantry, dabbles a little bit about the 8th and the 5th. Um, uh, but there's some really good stuff in there. Um, some stuff that, uh, make even the most hardcore historians giggle, um, reading over some of the stuff he's found. Um, the other one is a, is a memoir written by, um, Jasper Jackson Dykes. He's a member of, uh, company B, the second Florida cavalry. Um, he writes a memoir after the war that's extremely detailed, um, detailed in such a way that, you know, sometimes we chuckle at memoirs that are written after the war, especially by Confederates. Because there's a lot of, uh, of lost cause aneurysms in there. Um, but he kind of skirts away from that, and he really just gives you the details and the numbers and the days and what they were doing. Um, lastly is the Rose Cottage Chronicles, uh, which is basically a collection of letters um, between Winston Stevens and his wife Octavia up until his death. Um, and that, that really captures both the civilian aspect of living in wartime Florida as well as a 
captain commanding a unit in the state for the duration as well. Uh, there's a lot of raunchy material in there as well. Definitely <laughs> will pull on your heartstrings. Um, but those three things for me, we, we've pulled a lot of research from. Um, and that th those three books have an abundance of historical record to try to more easily identify what was going on in Florida during the time. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's quite a list. And, and for those of you listening, um, I'm going to put all these in the show notes, so don't worry about it. If you <laughs> missed the title, I'll be sure to mark all that down in there. But, uh, um, and you know, uh, I've said this on several episodes already, but, um, you know, some of these books are so rare. Yeah, it's hard to get a physical copy or get your hands on them. And it's amazing how much you can find online now. And, and a lot of my own research, you know, a lot of these universities and Haffey Trust, Internet Archive, some of these websites that you can find some of these out of print books or manuscripts on there. And it's really fascinating. So, so yeah, that's great. Um, look forward to sharing all that. And uh, I know we lost uh, Walter again. Hopefully we'll get Walter back on. But my last question, really, and uh, you guys may have answered this in a way already uh, for both of you, but um, I'll start with you, Gavin. Um, so for you, and it doesn't have to be in Florida, but like, what is your personal favorite battlefield? And is there a battlefield that you've never been to that you'd like to go to? Um, so as cheesy as it might sound, I'll never drop an opportunity to, to get to Gettysburg. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that that the 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 stories uh, and the descriptions of what the Fordians did there, what they had to endure, is always going to stick to me pretty strongly. Um, so I'll never turn down that that opportunity. So it's definitely one of my favorites, especially when we're on the topic of Florida. Um, one of the battlefields that I, I've yet to get to that that I would really love to see is more really Walter Speed in the AOT. Is I would love to get to Perryville. Um, never been there before. Um, wow. There's a lot of juicy Florida material uh, for that one as well. Um, but that's definitely on a bucket list for me. Perryville is, is really nice. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Really yeah. um, I mean, there's not, and that's another example of battlefield that, you know, there's not, it's not like Gettysburg for those of you listening, you know, it's not littered with uh, markers and monuments, but it's really, it's, it's well preserved and it's, it's really beautiful. As Walter said, it's uh, if you're in Kentucky, if you're going through, it's well worth the visit to get out there. But, uh, but yeah, Walter, that's what I, uh, our final question is, is uh, for you, uh, it doesn't have to be in Florida or anywhere. Um, what's your favorite battlefield, your personal favorite, Walter? And um, is, you, is there a battlefield that you've never been to that you've always wanted to go to? Okay, so that's actually a great question. Um, so mine's twofold. Uh, my favorite battlefields uh, in terms of a perfectly preserved one is definitely Chickamauga. Hands oh, down, yeah. every time I go there, I'm like a five-year-old kid. Like, oh, my God, look at this. Uh, only because I have a lot of family connections to that battle. Um, the other battlefield that I'm glad is getting a lot more preservation dollars now is Franklin. Um, whatever, mm -hmm. like every time I read about that battle, this, the Army of Tennessee story and the men of the uh, Army of the Ohio who faced them, it was, you know, this is sheer carnage and horror and hell those guys went through for four to five hours. And now we're getting to a point where that battlefield is getting more and more publicity and more and more preservation. Um, some of the ones I actually want to go visit eventually are out across the Mississippi. I've, I've actually been very blessed to have a family that took me to every Civil War battlefield that's a national park east of the Mississippi River. Like, I've been to oh, the nice. Yes, it's really cool. Um, but 
in terms of going out there, uh, Pea Ridge and Wilson's Creek are definitely on my list of ones I need to get out and look at because those are two I've always read about. Like, that is some cool stuff. And Glorieta Pass is another one I want to go check out. <laughs> oh, for sure. And uh, uh, those are probably some of the most least visited <laughs> battlefields around. And uh, I mean, going out that far west. But uh, I, I've been to... Um, P Ridge, and that's one of the westernmost ones I've been to. And and P Ridge is is a good one; it really is. And uh, there's a lot of land out there. And um, my uh, favorite out there is like the area around Elkhorn Tavern. That's kind of neat. Uh, having an old house right there on the battlefield. Um, uh, so there's some cool stuff to see out that way. And uh, I think Prairie Grove is not far from P Ridge. Um, I want to say, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff to see and there's a lot I haven't been to yet. So, um, but I love it, man. Yeah. Um, but guys, I really want to thank both of you. Um, sorry for some of the tech difficulties here and there, but awesome. uh, guys, you guys came prepared. And so I really appreciate it. Uh, you guys answered every question and uh, man, you guys are quick, quick on the draw right there. So uh, um, pretty soon you guys will, be following up Gary Adelman on the American Battlefield Trust or something because uh, you guys got a lot of uh, good research put together there. And uh, I hope uh, I certainly learned a lot tonight. And I know our listeners, I'm sure, have learned a lot. But guys, thank you so much. Very welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, man. Much appreciation. And maybe here in the near future, we can get you down here to Florida and maybe take you on a little tour. Oh, that that would be amazing. And I got to get down there to one of your events down there. I still haven't. And so I really, I need to get, get uh, going. <laughs> yeah, but before y'all go, if you're wanting to come to our big next big event, it's going to be the Fort Clinch Garrison portraying the 97th Pennsylvania. Uh, Gavin, you want to give some details on that before he lets us go so we can kind of hype That's that up? The, that, uh, is that uh, Galusha Pennypackers Regiment? Yes, it is. <laughs> it, it, it definitely is. Um, one of the so key locations... Name, guys, just letting the viewers, the listeners know, Galusha Pennypacker is a real name. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the, the, the boy colonel. Um, the, uh, one of the places we've really, we've really been working with and we've been trying to get in for a while um, to do a full-scale garrison is at Fort Clinch uh, there on Amelia Island outside of Jacksonville. Um, very awesome site. Uh, the, one of the lead rangers there, um, Franco Felt, has done a ton um, to that site to, to bring it up to, to, to quality standards. Uh, he's wrote multiple books as well. Um, but but he basically he invited the, the Liberty Guards to hold a garrison there, which we're super excited about. Um, that'll be that first weekend in January. Um, just to briefly kind of capsulate what we'll be doing for the weekend, uh, we will be garrisoning the fort. Um, they 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 have full scale barracks. Um, they have four kitchens, brick fire oven, um, uh, mul- multiple things that we're going to get to do and get to experience that you don't see a lot. Uh, we'll be drilling on the beach. Uh, we'll get to do some assault style drill, uh, which I don't think that very many of us get to do very often. Um, we'll be doing some heavy artillery training. Um, first section's coming down and helping us out with that a little oh. bit. Um, but uh, it'll be a cool time at, at the beach in Florida. And I, I strongly encourage anybody that hasn't been to one of our events um, to come down and experience what we have to offer. We know it's a trip, um, but we do definitely put our heart and soul uh, into making the drive worth it. So definitely encourage it. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, I definitely got to put it on my schedule, man. And, and is that something um, that uh, the public can, uh, spectators can be at, or is this like a, a closed immersive event nope it'll be it's 100 percent open to the public it's on one of the park's primary weekends 
um, and that park gets visited a lot. So there'll be a few thousand spectators there to talk to, um, get a little bit of history, a little uh, first person in if some guys are into that. Um, but definitely grade A living history opportunity. Yeah. Oh, that's great. D San Marcos is the second most visited fort in Florida, and I looked at the last statistics. So it and the Fort in St. Augustine, the Castillo D San Marcos, or Fort Marion, or Fort George, whichever persuasion you are, what point of history we are, it um, second most visited fort in Florida. So you, if you're into inter, this is the event for you because you're going to have a ton of folks coming into the fort. Awesome. Oh, I love that, man. And uh, for, for anyone listening that may want to come see that event, um, what uh, what website or where do they need to go to learn more about Fort um, Clint? They, they, can, they can go on the, the, the regular park service um, for the state of Florida. Uh, fort Clint is listed up there, uh, all their open weekends, information about the fort, etc. And I do believe that they have the links um, to, to Ranger Ophelt's books um highlighted as well so if anybody even is just curious to read about fort clinch the, the information is definitely there on the public website it's been access wow yeah i really need to get down there so um, i'm gonna i'm gonna put this on my schedule for sure and i look forward to that and guys um thanks again thanks so much um again this is a this has been a blast and uh great job tonight guys so really appreciate it uh, appreciate yeah, it man. appreciate you Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. And uh, I'll be sure uh, we'll, we'll probably have you on again down the road sometime to dive into a lot of the <laughs> forts and coastal war. We could we could talk about a number of things. But oh, yeah, we'll have Florida 25 episodes of it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Well, thanks again, guys. You guys have a good evening and everyone. Uh, thank you for listening and look forward to more episodes to come. Thank you for listening to the Civil War Regiments podcast. If you like our content, please subscribe. You could find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow or like us on Facebook at Shot and Shell Civil War Regiments Podcast.